Hello and welcome to another episode of Alec Mappa Hot Mess with Matthew Dempsey, psychotherapist. I'm Alec Mappa, I'm an actor and comedian, I live in Hollywood. And I'm Matt Dempsey, I'm the psychotherapist and multicultural counselor. Did you hear how well I did the intro today? It was I, great, it was beautiful. See yeah, I usually like need two or three takes and today I actually <laughs> bit it all out. Like, well, and like you kind of just, just went along with what the traditional script is. Sometimes you throw in some curveballs, so I'm never sure exactly how I need to follow up. I know. <laughs> like I just ate a block of cheese. So uh, <laughs> we were talking right before the program and yes. you were listening to the New York Times podcast and it was very I informative. Do. Yes, I love it. It's called The Daily um, and it's great. I mean, I, I really kind of read through the New York Times pretty much every day anyway, among other media sources. And mm-hmm. then also listen to The Daily Podcast, which is great. It's pretty short, maybe 30, 40 minutes or so. Um, but it just gives me kind of like a snapshot into, you know, kind of whatever the topic is that mm-hmm. day. And today was all about kind of like the most current updates on not just the coronavirus, but also the newest information that's coming out around the Pfizer uh, vaccine that yes. is, you know, kind of like, yeah, uh, breaking a lot of expectations and really Which is being way. put together in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Wow, I thought Kalamazoo. that was random. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so today's, um, so you, you came up with the title for today's uh, program, which well, is. Well, yeah. So I thought, you know, it's kind of important for us to be able to pay attention to our informed wellness, right? Mm. So that's the topic informed wellness is just really about, you know, kind of checking in on, yeah, what we need to know so we can actually consciously take care of ourselves well. Well, that's terrific because today we have an expert in epidemiology and and new viruses. And you'd be surprised to know, some would be surprised to know, it's Morgan Fairchild. Morgan Fairchild, yay! Yay, who knows all about this stuff. Now, it's it's interesting because you you studied... Psychotherapy, that, that is that is your speciality. Yes, I studied, psych- I studied psychotherapy. Um, and then I also had my earliest training at a, an HIV AIDS organization called GMHC, Gay Men's mm-hmm. Health Crisis in New York. So along with, you know, kind of just traditional psychotherapy, there also was a lot of information that I needed to know. There was a period of time where I did test counseling. So, you oh. know, kind of testing people for HIV, having to deliver yes. the results, give them You the were the counselor who, after you heard your uh, status, you'd be there? Yes. Him? Yes. So there are. Yes. And so, yes, there were several times that I had to tell people that they're HIV positive. Oh um, but yeah, which is which is difficult, but also kind of like a great position for me to be in to get to offer that kind of support that's needed in a moment like that. So, OK, walk me through that. What was that like the very first uh, time you had to do that? I mean, really hard. It was one of those things where I mean, it's because at the time, you know, we were using rapid testing as, as they still do in a lot of uh, places. And so it just kind of looks like a kind of like a, you know, like a birth control stick. Right. And so because uh, it's like a swab, it's an oral swab. And it just is basically like, you know, if there's one line, it's negative. If there's two lines, it's positive. And I remember the first time I looked at it and there was the faintest, faintest second line. And I thought, no, please, no. <laughs> I don't want to for do you. this. For you. Yeah, for me. And I don't want to do this. So I went and got one of the supervisors. She came in and saw it. And she said, yeah, there's definitely a second line there. This is a, this is a preliminary positive result. This is the information that we have to give this client. And so, um, you know, I had to walk in, get the client, bring him in. And he was, as every time you go back into the waiting room to bring them into an office, they always like glare right into your eyes to try Mm. and see what, you know, the expression is. So you have to just kind of have this like stone cold look on your face. Okay. This is circa what? This is circa. This was around 2004. Five or six. Uh, okay, so it's, it's it's post cocktail. There, there's it's a oh, treatable yeah. disease yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, okay, yes, 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 yes. You weren't informing um, people like no, that I wasn't. When in- it was like nice the, knowing you. 
The majority of it, yes, absolutely was just emotional support and just being able to understand, you know, the stigma and how that affects. And so it was more around emotional support because in terms of it actually legitimately being like a medical issue and, and compromised life expectancy or quality of life, mm-hmm. not, not really the case anymore. But so it was, emo- it was emotional support. So anyway, so bringing him back into the office and having to tell him and, you know, he was just kind of stunned and numb. And that was a lot of the times kind of the uh, the experience. But, you know, I got to be the support for them. So was there ever anybody who was like, meh, whatever? Yes, uh, there were a couple, but I could tell at that time that people that people that had that reaction to it, it was they had probably already known that they were positive and they thought that they had to pretend like this was the first time that they were finding out so they could access the free resources at the agency. So like they didn't need to, but I think they thought that's what happened. But I would say the most visceral responses were actually people who got like negative results. Like they were the ones kind of like, (sighs) yeah. Yeah. No, I no, I back in the Jurassic era when I was taking (laughs) the tests, it was at a time where the test took a week. Yeah. And they had to draw blood. It was not a swab test. Yeah. And it was, you were in trouble. It was kind of like, you have a dormant um, disease that may kill you, may or yeah. may not kill you. Yeah. Um, and um, the the very first time I took it, I had to take it again after waiting a week for the results because they said, we couldn't find your blood. We have a problem locating your blood. You have to take it again. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> like, uh, not something you want to hear when you're waiting no, on pins and needles. No. And, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then I got the results. But at the time, I remember how frightening it was. It was really, really scary. And yeah. now that I'm, um, I've been going back to work and, and uh, going to different sets, I'm, I'm being tested for this all the time. I'm being yes. tested for corona constantly. Yeah. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how they roll out this vaccine, because it seems like that's going to be complicated. It's important. All of these things are connected. And so we need all of these moving parts in order for us to, you know, in order for us to feel okay. I know. Like I grew up in San Francisco and I remember even in high school, when I was in high school, even before I moved to New York, when I was 18, there were safe sex guidelines because it was San Francisco. So there was already like a whole guideline of things that you should and shouldn't do. and, And there were so many people who didn't have that information. It's, it's, it's vital. And it's, it's, What's what's driving me crazy is that opinion has replaced science and yeah. that it's I don't like saying believing in science. It's not Santa Claus. It's whether or not you agree with science. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I would also kind of adjust that to not not just a opinion, but also emotion. Right. And so there's a lot of people who are feeling really scared and don't mm-hmm. want to consider it. There's a lot of people who are feeling lonely and really missing their families and want to disregard facts so that they can, you know, justify their desire to want to be around people and see people. Mm. And I think that's an important distinction to make because then we can humanize the people who want to look the other way instead of vilifying them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Honestly. You're always against vilifying people and I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything is so divided in this country and in the world. Don't we need to, don't we need to like be- get back to a, a I should be page. more compassionate like you. I, the world would be a better place. I'm 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 Judge Judy. Listen, I can't <laughs> think of a better segue than to bring in our, our guest because I want to hear everything she has to say about this subject. Yes, yes. 
Today's guest is Morgan Fairchild. She's a legendary actress and activist who first electrified the nation playing the murderous Jennifer Pace on the CBS daytime soap opera Search for Tomorrow. She appeared on the primetime soap opera Dallas and on Flamingo Road, for which she was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, Television Series Drama. Her many seller credits include Falcon Crest, Murphy Brown, which we love, and also for which she was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series. Say that 10 times fast. Roseanne, Sybil, Friends, and of course, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. She's a superb performer, but there's more to her than meets the eye. In addition to her accomplishments as an actress, Morgan is an outspoken and dedicated supporter of AIDS research efforts, the pro-choice movement, and a great range of environmental issues. As a member of the entertainment industry's AIDS task force, Morgan testified before a special congressional committee about AIDS education. Please welcome to the show the brilliant and beautiful Morgan Fairchild. <laughs> Thank you. Morgan. What an intro. Thank you, guys. I know. It's like you're a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Oh, I wish. <laughs> it's so uh, We're so excited about having you on yes. the show. Uh, oh, Morgan. I'm so excited to be here and um, I love you and I just want to do anything I can to support your new endeavor here and I think oh, it's very you, exciting Morgan. what you guys are doing and I think it's so important too to be reaching out to people uh, during all of this time uh, to to let people know that they're not alone and that everything they're feeling is okay yes. and not weird and that it's okay mm -hmm. to feel not okay. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think what you're doing is great. Great for all that's the a big, That's issues. a huge, huge component of the show. Um, Morgan and I have known each other for a very long time. We were on a legendary episode of Friends uh, oh. with little Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, remember? Um, oh, yes. Morgan was playing Chandler's mom, and yes. I was playing the housekeeper that Chandler um, uh, was sleeping with. And those were the circumstances. No, no, no. Chandler's dad was, Chandler's dad was sleeping with. Chandler's dad was sleeping with, yeah. leaving us oh, for you. Right. Yes, Turkey. Chandler's dad was leaving us for me. <laughs> so um, you were, you were, you've always been like, it's so funny. It's like as, as old as, as the minute I was old enough to know what show business meant, you kind of personified show business for me. Oh, like, well, that's kind of you. You're show business. And you've, you've, um, you're, you're known as this like, you know, legendary sex pot and everything, but people don't know that you're a self-described um, science nerd. How did that come about? You know, I, I was just always interested in science from the time I was a little kid. And, you know, I mean, Louis Pasteur was my big idol because he had found a cure for rabies. And so I was just always reading science books from the time I was a little kid. I mean, when I was five or six, I was reading a book about the La Brea Tar Pits. And so my first stop when I moved to L.A. was not Hollywood and Vine or the Beverly Hills Hotel. It was the La Brea Tar Pits. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sometimes even with the, the guys over there are so kind. Sometimes Sometimes even when I'm doing the big autograph shows, the Comic-Con stuff, you know, and they're doing a presentation, they'll call me over and I'll I'll do the saber-toothed tiger and all of that, or saber-toothed cat, they call it now, <laughs> and care and help them out with their presentation. I, I love paleontology. I love paleoanthropology. Uh, and, and as Alec knows, one of my hobbies is emerging viruses and epidemiology, which is how I was an early AIDS advocate. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, is tracking, I'm trying to track this virus. There's so much new stuff every day. I just not me out. I mean that 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 was like that. First of all, that your your childhood hero was Louis Pasteur. Uh, mine, was, <laughs> mine was Paul Lynn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved him too. <laughs> uh, so you you always had this this interest. So recently, you told me about 
we started talking about coronavirus very early on. When did you know that this was going to be an emerging virus? Oh, I first started seeing things coming out of Wuhan, like little trickles, like maybe late December, early January. At that point, um, America, well, I mean, the West didn't really know quite how bad it was, um, but it's uh, it was it was worrisome because we'd seen the first SARS come out of there too, mm-hmm. um, and so it was worrisome. And as it became more and more apparent how contagious it was, and how much more lethal than the earlier SARS, um, it, it I got I got very worried. I started tracking it very mm-hmm. early on, and and you knew it was already here. Because people are going back and forth all the time. Uh, President Trump likes to say that he closed down the, the airways, but he didn't really. Uh, I mean, like, you know, thousands and thousands, thousands of people came in after he supposedly closed it down. But um, but it was already here. I mm-hmm. mean, they should have been paying attention a lot earlier. And of course, uh, I agree with you, Matthew, that they should be doing a lot more yeah. now. They should have been doing a lot more all year because now we've got what Dr. Fauci and all the epidemiologists said we would have, which is a terrible winter because we've got this huge resurgence because people have not been doing the right things. Yeah. Yeah. When was, when was it that you, what was the moment for you that turned from just kind of a general passion for science to specifically tracking like epidemiology and, you know, that kind of specific study? I just always found the study of epidemiology very interesting, Um, kind of started with a cholera outbreak in London. Um, I forget what year, but back, you know, centuries ago. Uh And one of the doctors uh, who was tracking it, they couldn't figure out how to stop this cholera outbreak. And he did the beginning of epidemiology. He made a map and he saw where the outbreaks were. Mm -hmm. And and then he tracked it to this one water fountain, a pump, a pump they had, uh, seemed to be what everything centered around. Once they knocked out that pump so people couldn't get water from that, they stopped the epidemic. And so uh, that's the beginning of epidemiology. And so I just was always fascinated that you could do that. Like I said, Pasteur was one of my early idols. Also, you know, worked on anthrax, worked on a lot of different diseases besides rabies. But um, I was just always fascinated with how this all worked. And uh, consequently, because I'm very interested in epidemiology, the way our government has handled this outbreak has just so appalled me. And along with every doctor, um, that that it's just been so mishandled. And so... um, it's just been so egregious the way they don't seem to care if people die. Totally, um, yeah. And, I, and their own voters. I mean, their own people. And Jared Kushner's early statements about, oh, it's only going to hit the blue states, so we don't have to worry about it. Oh, God. That's you know. not yeah. what I read this morning. It's every red state. They're the ones who are hit the hardest right now. Yeah. I mean, when, when Trump had that, uh, that 4th of July rally in South Dakota and their Republican governor did not want to comply, did not want to implement any mandates at all, South Dakota is hurting so bad badly right now. Well, that uh, and then the Sturgis uh, motorcycle event that they didn't stop. Uh, they estimate that that has uh, spread to 250,000 people Oof. through the spread of people coming to that and then going home and spreading it in over 700 deaths. So mm-hmm. just that one event, because it was a huge event and nobody was wearing masks and everybody was drinking and singing and carrying on. Just it's very, very irresponsible, irresponsible of our federal government, irresponsible of a lot of state governments. 
Um, I see some of them are now trying to shut down and, and create mask uh, mandates. But, you know, yeah. the horse is out of the barn, honey, as we say in Texas. <laughs> the horse fled. <laughs> right. So. We, you were talking earlier about it's it's this kind of thing makes people very emotional. Yes. And yeah. you were, but you were talking about the positive side of, the, of that, about the people missing the connection with people and, and, and taking the risks in order to be close to people. But what about the people who are really defiant about it? Like in terms of there's, there seems to be a lot of uh, the, the side of the mask wearing of like, you can't tell me what to do. What do you think that's about yeah. from a, from a psychotherapeutic it, point of view? It's the same thing. It's just in greater extremes. It's just that there's this overwhelming fear and terror about kind of what's going on. And this is what people do when they get scared is that they get really defensive, very guarded, very kind of insular and self-protective. And so it's really just kind of like, a, you know, if you think about, you know, a wounded dog being backed into the corner, they're going to like growl at you, even though you're trying to give them food. Right? right. So it's that same psychology. And so that's really what it's about. And I actually think that, of course, we need to really make sure that we're getting people on the same page so we can take care of our collective health because we have to be mindful of that, right? Like we can't handhold every single person, but mm -hmm. it is important, I think, to have a modicum of compassion and understanding for why some people can be really pushed to the extremes. That way, maybe it can help, you know, kind of adjust a little bit more of uh, our approach so that we can actually kind of like soothe people into, into uh, getting better. So all those people who are all those Karens who are freaking out at the Target in the supermarket and throwing yes. tantrums. Yes. They're 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 frightened. They're, 100%. They're, they're they're the dog at the ASPCA that's backed into a corner. Yes. I mean, listen, it's either going to be love or fear, right? Isn't that what we know? Everything that right. we, every every decision, every kind of motivator in life, it's going to be either coming from a place of love or a place of fear. And I mean, it's just we see fear all over the place. It manifests and looks very different all the time, so it's hard to kind of disseminate but anything that's not loving is going to be fear driven. So, right yeah. now, now, Morgan, you speaking of fear, I, that brings up for me, like at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, how afraid people were and, and how badly the LGBTQ community was treated. Um, now you were one of the first advocates for AIDS education and, and AIDS information and science. Was that a risky move for you at the time? Oh, yeah, it was very risky. I knew it was. I mean, I knew it would cost me work. I knew I didn't realize it would cost me quite so much work, but I, I knew it would cost me work because there was so much fear because people were terrified, which meant that it became controversial, sort of like the mask issues now. And uh, but the thing is, because I'm this idiot nerd, um, <laughs> I, I knew that I had information that could be helpful. Yes. And, and that people so would I felt, listen to you. Well, I felt a moral obligation to get out there and try to start educating people and take the fear stigma off of the gay community yeah. um, and explain to people that it happened to enter this country through the gay community, but it is not a gay disease. And uh, I remember when I was testifying for Congress, uh, one of the congressmen uh, said something about, well, Miss Fairchild, you know, how many straight, normal people in my district are ever going to have to deal with this? Mm -hmm. And uh, something like that. And I and I and I just said, uh, sir, uh, this is a disease. It is a virus. It does not respect race or gender or sexual preference or your district line. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, you know, and it's the same with this. When Jared Kushner said uh, that, oh, gee, we can wait because only the blue states are affected. That's not how you deal with yeah. a virus. 
uh, and uh, and also it's just totally immoral and unethical and really bad form. And I could say a lot more, but you know, I'm, yeah. maybe kids listening. Um, but, but, um, but you know, but that was the same thing back with the AIDS virus. Um, I remember uh, the first time I did Nightline, I went on, and again, you know, I'm always fighting the stigma, you know, the yeah. the blonde stigma, and so um, the uh, I think. Ted Koppel had called me in the afternoon. Uh, I was doing Falcon Crest and said, hey, because Rock Hudson was still alive at that time. It oh, was wow. all brand new. They were having this big fundraiser downtown and it became the Amphar dinner, but Amphar didn't exist at that time. This is 85. I mean, mm. you know, nobody knew anything. And so I went, uh, I was on the set, Ted Koppel calls and he says, hey, um, I hear you know more about this disease than anybody in town. Uh, I said, well, that's kind of you. But he says, we want to do a panel show tonight on AIDS. We're going to do the whole show on AIDS. And um, we've got a, a lady who is a gossip columnist from Chicago who I knew would go with fear mentality. Oh, and, and our staff. Mm-hmm. That's a weird choice. Yeah. And our staff doctor. And we think we have uh, this big star, um, Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, but Ted, uh, she Elizabeth wanted to sing. He, she didn't want to be part of a panel. And so mm-hmm. I said, no, I don't care. I have no ego about being on a panel. I just care about getting news about the disease yes. out because everybody's so scared. So, um, you know, sure. And I said, you know, but hey, I'm at work. I, it's a black tie event. I don't have my dress. Well, sure enough, they ended up sending a car to my house, got my evening gown. I changed into my evening gown in the backseat of the limo, going down the freeway to <laughs> the Biltmore downtown to get to the Biltmore. We rush in. They put me in literally a cleaning closet. <laughs> throw a tarp over the Ajax and mops. And I'm sitting there with this little camera and it was my first satellite feed. I'd never done one. It was all new technology, no monitors. Like if you go in to do yeah. one now, no monitors. I can't see anything. Everything's coming in my earpiece and I'm a little deaf. So I'm worried I'm going to miss something <laughs> anyway. So we're going on and on. And at one point, uh, uh, Ted said to the doctor, uh, Ted said, you know, can can you get it from kissing? And so I popped up and said, well, there's no evidence you can get it from kissing, but the virus this one is most closely tracking is hepatitis B, and they have just isolated hepatitis B in saliva, uh, no evidence of transmission, but it may be in saliva. And so Ted says, to the doctor, is that true? And he says, no, that's not true. Well, I'm not going to argue with an MD on national right. television. Right. You know? So the next day they all called me and the producer of Nightline uh, became a good friend of mine. And he told me what happened is they got up the air and the doctor was so mad that this little Hollywood blonde had acted like she knew something. And so um, <laughs> they called They called to apologize because my my research was more up to date than their doctors. <gasps> and yes. I'd just been isolated in saliva. So then I became like the go to person yeah. for Nightline, you know. So then I did like the first town hall Nightline ever did was on AIDS, five hours with a bunch of doctors, uh, some Congress people and me and Harvey Barsting and uh, talking about all of it. And um, and, you know, when Magic Johnson got diagnosed, I mean, I became the go to person for AIDS on uh on there but you know my my obligation i felt was people were so scared like yeah, now yeah. they mm-hmm. didn't know what to believe there was a lot of confusion the yeah. reagan administration wouldn't even say the word ignored AIDS. it and so there was a lot of confusion and i felt because i was very famous and a sex symbol i could go on and say 
hey, all my all my friends, gay and straight, you're going to have to change the way you have your life. You know, yeah. coming out of the disco era here, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have to change our sex lives and be a little more careful. And um, so I felt it was a moral obligation to do that and sort of put a face on it. And I kind of viewed myself as the one who would take the punches to make it safe for other people. Yeah. Like one of my friends is a publisher of one of the one of the weeklies, you know, out here the West Coast version, he called me up and said, we want to do a um, Hollywood fights AIDS picture. And we wanted we want to have a bunch of stars talking about AIDS. And would you do this picture? And I said, sure. So he called me back a couple of weeks later and he said, thank you so much. And I said, why? And he said, because you said yes. Everybody had said no mm. until you said yes. Oh, wow. And then you made it safe for everybody else to say yes. Oh, wow. And I sort of felt like that was my task during the 80s and the AIDS period was to to put a face on it, to take the stigma off the gay community and to to get reason out there in the world instead of fear mentality, very much like mom. And, you know, what you do and don't do. And you don't have to be scared. Be reasonable. You know, look at the science, see what you need to do and do it. Same as now. And so um, so that was kind of what I tried to do was just make it safe for other people to get on board talking about AIDS. Because as you guys know, I mean, the whole Hollywood community, uh, it, it's all gay. You know, yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. so many friends yeah. who are at risk. You know, right. Dak, Rambo totally. had, uh, Dak Rambo had done. Uh, paper dolls with me. Jack and I adored Rambo. Dak. Oh, I adored Dak. Yeah. And, you know, and um, I forgot and I lo- that he had died of AIDS. I loved him. Yeah. And during even in '84, when we were when we were doing that before Rock, I was telling him about this new disease. I was telling him he had to be careful. And later, when he was diagnosed, he called me up and he said, "Morgan, you're the first person I ever heard say the word AIDS, and I wish I'd listened." You yeah. Know? And uh, yeah. but that was that was the thing is to try to let people know because. It's scary. It's a disease. You can catch it. Yeah. But you can certainly lower your risk of catching it. But I th- I think the difference with AIDS back then, what I remember of it is that it wasn't just that it was a fatal disease, but it involved there. You couldn't talk about AIDS without talking about sex. Right. And because yeah. it was a sexually transmitted yeah. disease. And you yeah. had to be pretty upfront about how it was transmitted. And I think back then, even back in the 80s, there was a certain degree of discomfort about that discussion publicly. Yeah. Did you well, did yeah. you find? Oh yeah, there was a lot of stigma about it. And you know, and um, I mean I mean I but people weren't just scared of that. I mean, I lost friends, I lost work. I lost friends who didn't want me to be around their children because I visited <gasps> wow. hospices. They didn't want me to be eating on their plates. And they were Are very you upfront. kidding me? No, not at all. And um they didn't want to be around me because I would visit hospices and I would, you know, like I opened the first AIDS veterans wing oh, with Mayor amazing. Koch in New York. Um and I, I was there for the unveiling of the first quilt and testifying before. So I was very public about it. And um people didn't I became associated in their mind with a disease, you know, that they did not want to be part of and that they really thought they could catch it from me. They obviously wasn't listening, weren't listening to what I was saying, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you know, yeah, I did lose friends and I did lose work. I mean, I, I know, um, 
What, oh, what work did you lose? Did they, did people not want to see you for certain things or? Yeah, I know uh, I'd be up for something and then I wouldn't get called in and, mm. it, and it would be things I'd be right for. One casting director that was working here at the time who's retired now when I was having dinner with some friends uh, uh, about three years ago. And uh, we were talking about this at dinner and, and he started crying at the dinner table. And he said, Morgan, I know you lost work because I'm a casting director. I was in the rooms when your name would come up and yeah. people would say, oh, she's just too controversial. You know, she's too controversial. Wow. Wow. So um, and I, I, I never knew if I got kind of let go from Falcon Crest because of it. Yeah. Um, so uh, but it was it was it was very strange because it was very sudden after we'd all been told we were coming back and everything was very strange. Yeah. But I, the loss of friendships, you really see who your friends really are. Right. And sort of like this with COVID. I mean, somebody I saw on Twitter a couple of days ago, one lady who I don't know, you know, had tweeted out and she said, a friend of mine said that if I won't have dinner with her and, and go out without mask, then, um, you know, then we can't be friends anymore. And, you know, am, am I being unreasonable? I said, no, you know, any friend who wants you to risk your life to have dinner is right. not a friend. Right. Yeah. Right. Hello. Yeah. And so you're better off without them. And that's sort of the sense. way I kind of dealt with, you know, with what I was with what I was going through with the AIDS thing. I mean, you certainly saw who your real friends were. I think that's amazing, though, because obviously, you know, people stand to lose so much. And as you did, too. Right. Like not just work, but even, you know, personal relationships. But it sounds like an interesting because the topic of the show today is informed wellness. Right. And just how empowering it can be for us to have the actual legitimate uh, factual information. And it sounds like for you, recognizing that this stuff was going on, that you could really lean on the hard science as a way to maintain confidence, to be able to keep taking the steps that you needed to take and felt good to take. Would you say like that that's what was happening for you? Well Yes. I mean, and that's one of the reasons like, uh, you know, because now we have Twitter and all this stuff. And so I, I spend a lot of my Twitter uh, timeline of tweeting out the new science, the new research, yeah. the new breakthroughs, yeah. things you should follow do. Morgan Fairchild on Twitter. Do you yourself yes. a favor? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's at it's at Morg Fair is mm -hmm. the first four letters of mm -hmm. each name at Morg Fair. But uh, but yeah, so I tweet a lot of that stuff. And just also trying to calm people down. Yeah. There's just so much fear. People are fear and that kind of uh, extrapolates and expands their um, their loneliness yes. and their anxiety yeah. and yeah. all of that. Uh, you yeah. know. What, have you so, what have you taken from the experience, obviously with the AIDS epidemic, what did you take from that specific experience that's been really helpful for you now during the coronavirus? Um, you know, just putting one foot in front of the other. Um, staying very centered on your on yourself and know who you are and not letting people bash you and needless to say, I get a lot of uh, uh, blowback on Twitter, uh, mm. you know, calling me an idiot and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, what does Blondie know and stuff like that? Wow. I don't care. You know, they if they only knew how much I don't care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just want to get the facts out. You know, <laughs> you can call me names to here and, and yonder, you know, I don't care. Uh, but I, I here. I love you so much. You're like one I of the nicest too. people I've yeah. ever met. And oh, before we go of... any further, you're on a, you're on a, you know, we're LGBT um, adjacent. We, 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 we're open to everybody, but on behalf <laughs> of the show, I want to thank you for all your activism. Yes. Oh, At the wow. time, thank you. You made, thank you've you. made an enormous difference on mm. the planet. And oh, one of the things that astonishes me about you is like, you went through like, the 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 pinnacle of showbiz in the in it during a certain era and you managed to stay out of the trouble tabloid wise how did you do that 
Well, honey, I'm just so boring. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not out doing sorted stuff. And, you know, uh, basically I'm pretty boring. And, um, (laughs) you know, and I, you know, I'm not real social. I I go out when, like, I will go to black tie events and red carpet stuff if I've got a show and they really want me to go. I force you to go out. I, I, I forced you into events. I forced you to go out to dinner. I forced you to come over to my place for dinner. Oh, uh, but yeah. I love you. I yeah. love you. I was, that was so fun. He's the and, best dinner companion ever. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah. you too. I love you. And you're, you're so sweet and you've been so helpful and so supportive. And I love what you're doing with the show here to try to help people. Yeah. Um, this is a time that I feel it is very important to help people. And like on my Twitter feed, like in the spring when um, when everybody was first locked down and I realized that a lot of people were in cold climates and they were locked down inside, you know, still in snow. So when I would go for walks, I would post pictures of flowers all the time that I take pictures on my walks to cheer people up. Like there is hope spring is coming, right. you know, and I didn't hit it that hard, but you know, but a lot of people really loved it. And, you know, and then I, I sporadically post videos and just let people know, you know, you're cared about, yeah. you are cared about. And you're this not is coming in from a person who was famous for being television's biggest bitch. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> Unbeknownst to them, I'm actually a good actor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also known for also known for being a sex symbol, like you were saying earlier. And you know, speaking from experience, Alec is constantly objectifying me. So I'm just always. always. I'm I'm still surprised that he can speak in complete sentences. (laughs) Were you were you always like known as a sex symbol? You know, kind of throughout your career or even your life. Um, well, no, certainly not in my life, you know, because when I was a kid, uh, I was I was always in advanced placement classes. And uh, and so nerd <laughs> and 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 I had I'm blind as a bat. So I had big, thick Coke bottle glasses, yeah. you know, and I'm all white. I mean, I have white eyebrows, white hair, white, you know, white eyelashes. And I, I told Alec, I look like an unborn chicken without the makeup on. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I I was always like teacher's pet, make straight A's, never said a word, exceedingly shy yeah. and um, never expected to go into this. And then I, when we, my sister and I started doing theater um, and I, you know, I finally got contact lenses and I started doing makeup. And suddenly it was like people were that didn't even notice I was alive. We're like, whoa. Yeah. You know, and I was like, well, you didn't notice me before. What's the big deal now? You know, How did you still handle me. that? Was that a was Yeah, that, what was that like? Was that I jarring re- for I you? remember I remember when I got contacts and I got my braces off and I started to kind of grow up and mature a little bit more. It started getting different attention. What was that like for you when that started happening? Was that jarring? Uh, it was interesting to me. I was like looking at it kind of third person, like, yeah. you know, this is the same person who wouldn't speak to you in the hall before. And now, you know, suddenly they're drooling over you. And, you know, the facade is always a facade. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and if people care about who you are, yeah. that's what matters to me. I, you know, the people who are like, you know drooling are, are like okay you know back off yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know uh, so I've always been very kind of third person about it you know the the sex symbol all of that stuff I never set out to be a sex symbol I just happened to get cast that way yeah and I could pull it off so um you know like the bitch stuff it's like I remember <laughs> when I, well I played a bad girl on on uh, on uh, 
uh, search for search tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. Jennifer Pace, she was crazy and she, <laughs> she she murdered somebody and she was institutionalized. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But when I first got to L.A., you know, my first job was doing a show with an actor named Patrick McGowan, where I was mm. playing a blind ex-Peace Corps worker with very little makeup, hair and a ponytail, all of this. And I thought, oh, good. L.A.'s not going to make me do all that. You know, then my first TV movie, I went in to read for a thing called Initiation of Sarah. And mm-hmm. it was for Chuck Freeze, who was like the king of TV movies at the time. It's the best and- movie. It's like Carrie. So <laughs> well, good. it was a ripoff of Carrie. Yeah. And Kay Lands was playing the Carrie part. She was the queen of TV movies. And then there were two other parts. There was the sorority queen, who's this mean bitch. And then and then Carrie's sister, who kind of wants to be in the sorority, but she loves her sister, so she's kind of torn. So I went in and they had me read for the bitch. And so, uh, and so he said, <laughs> you got it. Now, back in those days, that would happen. You know, the producer king of TV movies is, is you got the part. And I said... Oh, I'd really like to read for the sister, you know, because I think she has more gray areas. And he says, no, no, we want a brunette. I said, well, wear a wig. You know, we go back and forth. And finally, he says, honey, you haven't been here very long, have you? Yeah. (laughs) So I said, well, no, sir. And he said, let me explain something to you. I can find a good ingenue anywhere. But a good bitch is hard to find. <laughs> Once I could pull that, and I'm thinking, well, nobody's going to see this little movie. You know, it's a little horror movie. It was the number one movie of the year for ABC. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah. I said, so, and it set me on my road to bitchdom. There was because mm-hmm. I could pull it off, you know. But he was saying you have to have a an antagonist. You have to have a strong bad guy, or the good guy doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. It sounds to me like you've always really had this kind of very, very like strong sense of self. The fact that you don't over identify with any of it with your appearance or anything else and you can still march forward knowing who you are was that always the case for you or was that something that you had to learn at at a certain point that was kind of always the same case I I mean it was always that way I mean I've always been very kind of insular and um, I've always kind of known who I was you know, when I was young, I also felt God made a big mistake in putting me on this plane of existence because I really didn't fit in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, I've dealt with a lot of depression over the years. I've, yeah. you know, and the way I've gotten through the depression is just once you get through a couple of really bad bouts of it, you realize life does go on. Yeah. yeah. You know, yes. just hang on till this passes and life does go on. Yeah. And uh, so that's been kind of eye-opening from my, you know, my youth, my long distant youth. <laughs> it's wonderful. If you follow the hashtag, this is what I do with Morgan. I follow the hashtag Morgan Fairchild on Instagram mm-hmm. and all of her photos from the seventies, mm-hmm. like uh, during Halloween, there's like a sexy witch photo of you. Oh, that was and, from the eighties. That, yeah. You, you, you're always the hair is always gigantic. It's so good. And then I, and then I, and then I, I, I always like text the pictures to you. But the thing that I love about it is knowing you. There is a wink to it. There is oh, a yeah. wink of the, I'm in here and I'm presenting this to mm-hmm. you. Did you feel that way at the time oh, when yeah. you were doing like yeah. all those cheesecake photos and everything? Well, they kind of made you like the witch mm-hmm. photo that was for uh, Flamingo Road. You know, NBC made you come in and do some. Mm-hmm. I've got some not with me as Santa Claus, but George Burns, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's they always would make you do the Hollywood stuff and uh, and all that stuff. So to promote the show. So to me, it's like, OK, I'm here. How do we have a little fun with this? silly thing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm here. You made me come. What can we do with this to make it kind of fun? But that was also the way that I managed to 
come off of the shows as well. Um, like with Flamingo Road. I mean, I was not the lead character. It was a remake of a Joan Crawford movie, and I mm-hmm. was not the Joan Crawford character. And uh, I was just the wife of the guy who's having an affair with Joan Crawford character. And I'm kind of in the way of the two star-crossed lovers. So, you know, I mean, I had like eight scenes in a two-hour movie of the pilot. But because I would ad-lib and do funny shit, I would say funny stuff, and I would just do throwaways, it became, it, you know, the head of the, the, the hot thing on the show because mm-hmm. I kind of chewed the scenery and made it fun. Speaking made of improv, funny. I, we have to, I have to, I would be remiss because this is how I became a fan of yours. Um, I used to love you on Mork and Mindy. You played, <laughs> you played Pam Dauber's best friend on that show. And what was so great about that was it was, it was, it was when um, Robin Williams instantly became famous and all of your scenes with him, you would have to be completely still and just look at him and you never broke. And he'd be going bananas all around <laughs> you. Well, that was interesting, you know, because I grew up in the theater. And so I grew up being able to ad lib and go with things because I, I worked with a couple of really genius people who did that. And so when I got cast on, on Mork and Mindy, um, I, I went over early uh, to, because the show wasn't on the air yet. I went over early uh, to to watch them do a dress rehearsal and tape the show ahead of mine. So I could sort of see what the character relationships were. And and then um, I could see Robin in the commissary looking across at me with all of his Topanga Canyon, you know, pierced and, you know, purple haired, <laughs> spiked, you know, mohawks and stuff, looking at me thinking, oh, what did they send me, Miss White Bread America, you know. And so, uh, but anyway, but so then we got up the day that we did, we did a table read. It was very funny. And then we got up to start blocking it, you know. And for people who aren't in the business, uh, blocking just means here's where I'm going to stand and here's where you're going to stand. Here's where the camera's going to be mm. just blocking it out. And, uh, and I, and I quickly saw that what everybody would do was uh, you'd start the scene and then Robin would go off on a tangent mm. and everybody would just sit back and watch him go, you know, and he would just go, go, go. And he was so brilliant, so fast. And he would just go, 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 go. And then the directors would sort of say when he could see Robin was running out of material because Robin would never admit he was running out of material. The director would say, let's get back to the script. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so when I got up to do my scene, we started off and then he did something and I said something back to him and he went, Oh, and he said something, and I said something, and he said something, and I said something. He came over and grabbed me and threw me in the air and said, Mama, you're one of me. And so <laughs> that must have felt amazing. So, yeah. So a lot of a lot of that first year stuff that I did with him, we were ad-libbing. You know, we were just coming up with stuff. Wow. And and so he was a joy. What a wonderful man. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful man. And it, during that time, you know, before the show got on the air, he would come over to the to our apartment. My sister had gone to Juilliard with him and Chris Reed. And uh, she was the class sending ahead of them. And so we'd all sit on the floor and uh, in the living room and Robin was saying, people aren't going to get this. I and mean, it's going to be so weird. I said, no, Robin, you're going to be so famous. And then you've got a lot of problems. You're going to have to, you're oh going to have to keep your head on straight because yeah. this is going to be so big. He said, no, nobody's going to get it. I said, yes, they are. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan, you're my hero. I, I think you should be the uh, Corona correspondent for our show. <laughs> I, yes. I, 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 I love checking in with you. You're one of my favorite people. I want pe- everybody to follow Morgan on your, on your socials. Uh, where can you, where can we find you on your social oh, media? Oh, thank you. Well, Twitter, it's at morgfair. And uh, Instagram, it's Morgan Fairchild One. There is an at Morg Fair there that I started, but then mm. I didn't do it for a while. I went back, I forgot my password. And then I every time they'd say, we'll send you a new password, they'd never send it. So I had to open a new account. So 
Morg Fair on Twitter, Morgan Fairchild one on, on Instagram. And I love all your Instagram stuff. I love all your stuff. You're so cute. I love Thank the picture you. you posted yesterday with with the granddad and everything. <laughs> hashtag and follow hashtag Morgan Fairchild on Instagram. Before we go hot message, hot message. Yeah, hot message of the day. We always ask our uh given everything that we're all going through right now, what's your hot message for the day for people out there who are afraid? Well, kind of two. And it's what I say a lot in my videos that I post. You are not alone. And I care about you. And this too will pass. Mm -hmm. Just hang on and it will pass. Life will go on. But uh, each generation is tested. And, you know, we don't have to go through a world war. But we're being tested. And if you look at it as I am a hero in my own life, and I am going to survive this test, just like Thor or mm-hmm. <laughs> any of the mythical thero, thero, uh, heroes that have something put in their in their path. This has been put in the path of our generation, and you are the hero of your own story yes. to live up to doing what's right, doing what's smart, and doing what's kind. And I always try to stress the kindness and that everybody is under stress right now. So when you're feeling like you want to yell at somebody or do something, take that deep breath, take a step back and realize everybody is scared to death. Mm-hmm. And don't get into that because kindness will always win out. Yeah. And you are the hero in your own life. Thank you, Morgan. Um, I yeah, love you. I feel so much. Soon. I feel so much calmer just listening. I think she's the best. She's <laughs> yeah, the best. So thank you, Morgan. As soon as Corona's over, we're having dinner nonstop. We're gonna I drag you out of the house. I can't wait. I can't wait. It'll be fabulous. Say hi to your family. Say hi I to will. everybody. Thank Bye, you, Morgan. Morgan. Love Bye. you. Bye. Thank you. Oh my gosh, isn't she fantastic? Oh my god, I love isn't her. She, that was amazing. Just like, Amazing. 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 Like yeah. just when I just ta- hearing about her activism and how that's not, uh, I, I just want to remind people of the people who were in our corner from the beginning. Yes. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And I, she's, yeah, I was just going to say, I've got, I, I, I just kind of want to say I've got two hot messages. The first okay. message is just is uh, piggybacking off of Morgan because I loved, I love the way that she was talking about that in terms of like basically how to reframe everything that's going on right now, right? Mm. Like to, we are the ones who narrate our own stories. So do that positively, recognize this as an opportunity for us, you know, that we're like a student of this moment so we can grow. We're not a victim of it. And right. being able to reframe things like that is what increases motivation for us to keep moving and to keep charging ahead. The second hot message I want to say too is a famous quote by Isaac Newton. Um, that is, if I can see further, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants and Morgan Fairchild is a giant that we stand on the shoulders of because that is the correct use of privilege and allyship to be able to really kind of like spearhead, um, so much awareness and uh, acceptance for our community. Yes. Um, and I want to quote, um, Morgan's, uh, childhood hero, Louis Pasteur. And he said, (laughs) I might be paraphrasing here. Don't drink that milk yet. (laughs) I have to take a look at it. Where yeah. can people find you on your socials uh, and objectify you? Uh, <laughs> oh, I care about you, Matt. I care about you I deeply. I know, I know, I know. You love it, my heart. It goes Thank beyond the, the salt and pepper and totally. the broad I appreciate shoulders. That. Yes, well, you can do all of the above at MJ Dempsey Psych on Instagram and Twitter and Matthew J. Dempsey Psychotherapy on Facebook. 
You can find me at Alec Mappa at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us both at the Hot Mess Pod. Yeah. Uh, t- you know, write us. Tell us what you think of the show. Ask us about any of your mental health issues, your health issues, your your informed wellness mm-hmm. issues. And don't forget to download and subscribe. You know, we know you have so many choices when it comes to listening to podcasts. So we're so grateful and humbled that you chose to spend this time with us. Tune in next week. We'll have more Hot Mess fun. Bye, guys. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.